Hey there, I'm surfing TikTok. Um, I was surfing TikTok. Texas Paul is taking name. No, the Nazi who saluted Hitler at Seattle Air- Airport was not just having a moment. He has a long history of dangerous social media posts and illegal conduct. Texas Paul did a deep dive. Huh. Fucking. Ooh, Trump's legal. Worst legal week ever. <laughs> Stream two hours ago. This is what we need to hear. Some fresh fruit. A Some great a news. Because our great news, our great news is Trump's worst news. And Circuit Court of Appeals held its much anticipated hearing in the. Justice's expedited appeal of Judge Eileen Cannon's order finding equitable jurisdiction in the case involving Trump's theft of thousands of government records. It did not go well for Trump. (laughs) (laughs) E. Jean Carroll files a new federal complaint (laughs) under New York's adult survivor statute against Donald Trump for sexual assault. She also adds a new defamation count against Trump based on new statements he made in October of this year. The special counsel investigating Donald Trump's criminal conduct, Jack Smith, is already a very busy man. This week we learned that the DOJ has been reaching out to former Vice President Mike Pence for questioning about Trump's crimes, and Pence is considering speaking with the Department of Justice, not that he really has a choice in this matter, as Michael Popak and I will explain. The Supreme Court rules against Donald Trump in his emergency application Uh to block turning over his tax returns Uh to the House of Representatives, and Trump lashes out at this unanimous decision by the Supreme Court rejecting Trump's emergency relief by going on a deranged rant against the Supreme Court on his social media platform. And remember, three of those radical right-wing justices Trump appointed. And the right-wing Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals gave a bit of a surprising smackdown to a Trump MAGA judge who demanded that top-level Biden officials 
appear for deposition in a completely frivolous lawsuit brought by various Republican-led states against the Biden administration, alleging that the Biden administration was involved in social media moderation of anti-vax content. You can't make this stuff up, Popak. That's why you have legal AF, the most consequential legal news of the week. Happy Thanksgiving, Michael Popak. Happy Thanksgiving to all the legal AFers out there. Hope you all are having some time with your families and relaxing a little bit while watching Legal AF. Popak, how are you? I'm doing great. I can say this about that rundown that you just did. I don't think in the history of clients, a client, a defendant, has had a worse week in multiple venues across the country than Donald Trump, which is great because Donald Trump always likes to be the greatest, the best, the most. He, this is the greatest, the best, the most, worst week that a client could ever have across five different courtrooms, all of which we're going to talk about today in one week. If I had a client like this, I would have to sit him down and with a pot of bourbon and have a long, deep conversation with him about how do we resolve these matters. Of course, Donald Trump's not going to do that. And we'll talk about when he, when he hires which lawyer for which matter, you know it's going to be crazy depending upon which lawyer he uses. And we'll talk about the lawyers assigned to each of these five cases throughout today's podcast. You know, and I didn't even mention in the introduction the New York State uh, civil case brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James, who is seeking at least $250 million in damages. There was a hearing earlier in the week where the presiding judge over that case, Judge Arthur Engeron, set trial date for October 23rd of 2023 you know and a lot of people and i want to get your take on this popak because there were so many comments like that's still 11 months out and i wanted to tell everybody look in new york court that's like the fastest trial date i've ever seen ever trump is not getting any benefits there and popak you practice in new york how quick of a trial date for a case that was filed late september have you even heard of a case going no. to trial in you, October of 2023? You you can barely get, and this is, again, a, not a criminal case. So criminal cases sometimes go a little bit faster because of right, right, to, uh, right to trial. However, you can barely get an injunction hearing on an emergency application in, in less than a year. Trials in New York on the regular docket, three, five, ten years away. From an actual trial date. I'm in cases now, we don't even have a trial date set. And these cases were set three years ago. There's not even a trial date rumor. So justice and, and the wheels of justice move at different paces in different jurisdictions in different systems. Federal moves usually quicker, state moves slower, civil moves slower criminal moves faster. So you've got all these wheels of justice turning simultaneously being led by prosecutors and civil lawyers like Robbie Kaplan, we're going to talk about, and E. Jean Carroll, and all of that. You know, this isn't like an, a mass orchestrated thing. There's no conference call during the week for all of the prosecutors prosecuting from <laughs> state and federal, Robbie Kaplan doing the E. Jean Carroll. I mean, that would be like the conference call of my dreams, that that would happen every week to talk about what can we do today to coordinate each other's mm -hmm. cases and whipsaw Donald Trump. That doesn't happen. And, and that just shows you, though, that these wheels are independently moving 
and they're and it's based on docket the length of time things take in that court, that courthouse and motion practice that Donald Trump files usually without any credibility or merit that does slow down the process and we'll talk about that as well Judge Arthur Angeron pointed that out at the hearing earlier this week, this motion practice without merit. Alina Haba was representing Trump in that proceeding, which almost seems that he sends her there at this point as a complete <laughs> troll to Judge Arthur Angeron, because she's just absolutely the worst. And she files like the most frivolous made up documents. And Arthur Angeron was like, what are you even filing? Like, what, what, what is this? Like, I already denied these. He said, I already denied these very motions just because you can't keep filing the same thing, Ms. Haba. Look, this goes back to what you and I described a few podcasts ago as the crazy, uh, you know, the crazy meritless um, axis or graph. The crazier and more meritless the motion or case, the more likely you're going to see Alina Haba. The more, I mean, credible is giving him a lot more credit than he should, but the more credible the argument, or at least it passes basic straight face tests, the more likely you're going to see Jim Trusty Corcoran, um, Susan Necklace, who's his a defense lawyer in the criminal case in, tr- in the Trump organization, and Chris uh, Kites. Chris Kites. Yeah. So that if you see those guys, I mean, you can at least sit through the argument. Although we'll talk about how Trusty was just flame broiled during the 11th Circuit earlier this week. But if it's really nuts out there, cuckoo, mad as a hatter, that's Alita Hubba. Yeah, you know, the uh, assistant New York attorney general who was arguing the case before Arthur Engeron after Alina Habba went up there and she was like, this is unfair, this is unconstitutional, this is an abuse. Uh, you know, the New York attorney general assistant was like, okay, literally, judge, all she does is say those words and she doesn't actually make an argument with evidence. Can we all appreciate that for one second? And then the judge was like, yeah, I'm ordering you to trial in October. And Popak, you mentioned Jim Trusty. I want to talk about Jim Trusty. Look, he had a not so easy task in representing Donald Trump before the 11th Circuit. He did a not so good job uh, doing it, but I have no sympathy for him because this whole entire charade should never have taken place. In the first place, it is completely unprecedented for a federal judge like Judge Eileen Cannon, a Southern District of Florida federal judge who was appointed by Donald Trump to assert equitable jurisdiction to stop, to enjoin the Department of Justice from engaging in a criminal investigation of an individual where there has been no finding that the Department of Justice engaged in unlawful conduct, yet alone the uh, Department of Justice engaging in a callous disregard for the rights of somebody being investigated. Or to put it in Chief Breyer's, Chief Chief Judge Breyer, one of the three on the panel we're going to talk about next, put it in his words, the record is already complete and settled law now. The, The... execution of the search warrant in Judge Pryor's words, who chaired that panel, it was a lawful execution of a search warrant. And he posed that question to trustee. He said right up front, that's why you knew this was not going to go well from the minute the minute the, uh, the first question came out of the box uh, 
both to the Department of Justice we're going to talk about, which was a softball. I've never seen such a softball thrown by a panel to a, uh, an advocate in their favor, which was, which was Chief Judge Pryor saying to the advocate for the Department of Justice, uh, basically, how would you like us to write the order in your favor? Should we write that the uh, that the Judge Cannon's decision was vacated? You said reversed, but shouldn't it really be vacated because we're talking about jurisdiction? Oh, my God, if I was on the other side of that, that's the first question to my opponent. You're toast. The question to trustee was no better, which was from Judge Pryor. Name us one case. Give us one case where a federal judge exercised equitable jurisdiction where a search warrant was lawfully executed. Go ahead, we're waiting. And of course he tap danced and said, uh, maybe this one, or there's a case involving Rudy Giuliani that we're going to get to, which is what you're talking about. Yeah, that was later though, Popeye. Right, 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 later in the, yeah, yeah. the 40 oral argument, he admitted that it wasn't, that there was no case. And so, and then later on, like the next day, trustee then sends a letter <laughs> to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and cites the Rudy Giuliani search warrant case, which was not a case involving equitable jurisdiction. And then the day after on Thanksgiving, November 24th, for everybody wondering if Jack Smith was going to be caught up to speed, Jack Smith writes a letter to the 11th Circuit on the 24th calling out Trusty for being a liar and say, look, Trusty just lied to you and said the Rudy Giuliani case involved a federal court's assertion of equitable jurisdiction. It wasn't. It was a case where we, the Department of Justice, executed a valid search warrant. We requested a special master simply because it was a very unique circumstance involving a lawyer and a law firm where there could be potentially other uh, client documents at issue. And so we just thought in the abundance of caution, the taint team wouldn't be the right use here. Let's just use a special master to be extra careful. That was not a federal judge enjoining or stopping the Department of Justice. But Popak, give me some other highlights you yeah. thought from this 11th Circuit oral argument. Well, let's start with Jack Smith, who I, first of all, um, I'm going to come up with something new for him. I love the fact that he's Jack Smith. He's not John Smith. When he signs his pleadings or people sign pleadings in his name, which is what happened here, uh, Gonzalez, who's the U.S. attorney for the for uh, for the uh, Southern District of Florida, signed it in the name of Jack Smith when they did this Thanksgiving filing. I love it. It's like it's like James Bond, Jack Reacher, Jack Smith. And if it's James Bond, I'm telling you, Trump, after watching his lawyers get roasted, is now shaken and stirred because Jack Smith is out is out for blood here. And he is, as you said, really up to speed in the case. What I liked about it was a couple of things. First of all, Trump got a terrible draw on purpose. This was not um, a random selection of a three-judge panel at all. This was Chief Judge Pryor selecting two other people. And the two other justices that he selected, although Trump appointees, uh, Judge uh, Brasher and Judge Grant, were terrible picks for Trump and great for, great for justice because they were on the panel in September that ruled in favor of the Department of Justice and against Donald Trump on, ver on almost the same issues about whether <clears throat> Eileen Cannon, Judge Cannon, had equitable jurisdiction to set up a special master process for 100 classified documents. They went out of their way in that multi-page opinion to not only say she did not have per equitable jurisdiction at all, therefore stop, don't do anything else. They said, but, only, but because the Department of Justice asked a very narrow question of us, on appeal, 
we have narrow jurisdiction ourselves. So we're going to say she didn't have equitable jurisdiction, but they basically, as we anticipated then in our podcasting, invited a bigger appeal about the entire assertion of equitable jurisdiction by Judge Cannon. Now, before I get to what you asked me, which is a couple of the high points led by both Judge Grant, Judge Brasher, and Chief Judge Pryor, each one of them um, were terribly skeptical of everything Donald Trump's lawyers were saying, and even cut him off at numerous places to correct the record and to note that there was nothing in the record to support most of his arguments. Um, what about when they cut him off Popak right away and said that when he said raid, raid and they go, wasn't it just a valid execution yeah. of a... So that was Judge I'm, Grant. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry, Your Honor. I'm sorry, Your Honor. I agree with the court's premise that there's not case law. I would start with the broader premise, which is there's also not a situation in the history of this country where a sitting president authorized a raid of a presidential candidate's home. So we have some initial do context. That, do you think that raid is the right term for execution of a warrant? Or execution of a warrant. That's fine, Your Honor. I apologize for using a, a more uh, a loaded term. Yeah, that was Judge Grant, Judge uh, uh, Britt Grant, who's a Trump appointee, when he said, because he can't help himself. He's got his talking points. They all do. He's, they've got to attack Joe Biden and call it a political a, a, a political process that led to the, the quote-unquote raid. That's on a like a little uh, kitchen you know, uh, index card or recipe card that they bring. They have to, they have to get it in. Otherwise, you know, it, it's like a drinking game for Trump. If they don't get those words in, they get in trouble when they get home. So they got to get it in. But Grant cut him off and said, stop, basically stop. It wasn't a raid. It, it was the lawful ex execution of search warrant. Isn't that what you meant, sir? And he said, yes, but then he couldn't help himself when he was responding to a question by Judge Pryor 10 or 15 minutes later, he tried it again or Judge Brasher and <laughs> they both said, I thought we've already established that it's not a raid because because they had already read all the briefs and we knew where they were going just to clear up some misconceptions. Oral argument, um, most judges having read the briefs, although they haven't really caucused officially yet, they sort of made up their mind about where they're going. They use oral argument to sort of sort out some of the questions they may have, push back on things that weren't in the brief or weren't properly developed in the brief. But they they're fully prepared for this hearing and they knew that they were going to start from the preposition or the, or the presumption that this was a lawfully exercised search warrant. And so you have Judge Grant saying, isn't every argument that you're making, sir, an argument that any target of any search warrant before they're indicted would make? And, and, and it's no different just because your guy's the president or ex-president, right? And of course, he had to concede that. So she walked him into that trap. And, the, and, and that led to the trap that Judge Pryor laid, which is name me one case where a properly exercised search warrant leads to the exercise of equitable jurisdiction to interfere with the executive function of the Department of Justice to investigate and prosecute a crime. I'm waiting. Give me one case. Now, Trump, um, I think the strategy is too smart behalf, realizing, especially after they pulled that panel, that they were probably going to lose potentially Judge Cannon. They filed the night before the hearing. You you talked about it in one of your hot takes. They filed the night before the hearing a motion for Judge Cannon to basically stay in the case, like an invitation to stay in the case. Because <laughs> if her special master process goes out the window and therefore her equitable jurisdiction, finally, Eileen Cannon is out of this case. So they file a motion to keep her in, you know, to kind of pull her back. And the motion is a motion to unseal the entire FBI affidavit 
that supported the search warrant, naming all of the confidential informants, naming the FBI agent, naming the people that ratted out Trump, you know, stuff that you certainly are not going to give a criminal defendant, not even a criminal defendant, a pre-indictment search warrant. Never happens. But there, and just so everybody knows, and we want to be fair, the redacted version of that affidavit was already released by the person that was appropriately exercising jurisdiction here, the the magistrate judge. He already produced as much of that as possibly could be set set out without compromising the... Um, oh, can I pause you there for one second? Because sure, how sure. smart, in retrospect, was the magistrate judge, Judge Reinhardt? We yeah. talk about playing chess and thinking many moves ahead. This guy back in August looked like four months ahead to what was going to happen. Because a lot of people were even skeptical of him there unredacting certain portions of the affidavit supporting the search warrant. Because that's very rare. And he held that hearing. He did the full analysis and then said, you know what, government? Some of this, because of the public interest unique to this case, should be public, but I want to keep the names confidential. And he got some criticism because it's so rare to even do that. But in, in retrospect now, he kind yeah. of checkmated, right? It's a brilliant move. I, I, I think, I think you're right. Do that. You're right on it. And he took away the entire argument about the need for that. The other thing that was very interesting for me out of the 40 minutes was... Um, and this is we're get, we'll get into a lesson about appellate records and what can be argued on appeal and what can't be as it comes up from the trial level. Because some people might get the impression, based on Jim Trustee's presentation, that you can argue basically anything, throw it against the wall and hope that the panel will bite at it. If it's not in the trial record from below, preserved literally in a big R, capital R record, that the parties have to literally prepare with the clerk of the court, numbering the pages R1 through R whatever of documents, briefs, exhibits, evidence, whatever was below. You can't come into court on the day of your appeal or even in your appellate brief that you filed and attach a new piece of evidence, a new testimony, a new deposition transcript, a new argument that wasn't that wasn't raised below. Um, or at least uh, at least raise the trial level. You certainly can't do it on your feet when you're arguing your oral argument. And so when trustee kept saying, well, it's no secret that we'll be arguing that it's a general warrant, which is under constitutional law, you know, we don't like having um, uh, criminal judges issuing just general warrants to go, go look in this person's house and see what you find. That's sort of a general warrant. And they're arguing somehow this was a general warrant. But it's no secret that we're arguing with the general war. It's no secret that we'll be arguing eventually, sometime in the future, based on we don't know what yet, that this was an improperly executed search warrant. And Chief Judge Pryor stopped him and said, all right, stop. None of what you're talking about right now is in the record, sir, is it? He said, no. He said, all right. So it's a secret to us as the appellate panel. It is a secret because it's not in the record. And basically, if it's not in the record, stop arguing it here because we're not going to be able to rely on it in making our ruling. And what Judge Pryor is most concerned about, and I think he's going to write this one, what Judge Pryor is most concerned about is precedent, things you and I have talked about. This is why the Department of Justice had to challenge Judge Pryor 
because you couldn't leave this on the books for some future Jim trustee to pull out and try to argue, oh, the case of Trump versus, uh, you know, uh, U.S. and the Judge Cannon, you, you got to take it off the books, terrible law. And he said there is a sep Judge Breyer said there's a separation of powers problem here that I am very concerned about. And it's not just about Judge Cannon. He was, they were very upfront, that panel, then, and they said it is about the future Judge Cannons, the instructions that we're giving to the future federal judges about their exercise of executive, uh, of, of uh, equitable jurisdiction in the face of the uh, Department of Justice trying to do an investigation criminally. They are concerned about it. They're concerned about the precedent-setting nature of it. And, and that's why they kept interrupting Trusty with, we have a bigger case here. We're worried about the next... Eileen Cannon doing something. And that's and that and the separation of powers is what's I think gonna drive the decision. That there's no precedent in fit for uh, thank God. I mean, could you think what the world would be like if every target pre-indictment, they're not even a criminal, he's not yet Trump a criminal defendant. He will be, but he's not yet. If they could just run into court, they don't like the search warrant, the search warrant, they were mean, they threw things on the floor. They took they took that memento that I wanted from North Korea or whatever it was and, and stopped the investigation while we sorted out with a special master. This would turn criminal jurisprudence, federal or state, on its head. And it would turn the executive branch inside out. You know, the whole notion of equitable jurisdiction is that in the rarest of circumstances that the government is engaging in such a abuse of someone's rights, and it's so obvious, like, what are you doing that a judge has to step in and go, all right, all right, let's take it, let's chill here for a second, and if, because otherwise, the judge is now becoming like a counter executive branch. You are stopping the executive branch's functions. You are no longer functioning as the judiciary where you're supposed to call balls and strikes. You are now overruling what executive branch decisions can be. And that's really, again, to your point, Popak, this broader issue of what's at stake here and why Judge Eileen Cannon's decision was so completely wrong. Popak, final word there because I want to move on. To yeah, the yeah, I do too. So, so the way I want to, I, I use this on one, of my, on one of my takes on it. Interference between the branches is really important. And just as we wouldn't want the judiciary, um, the judges, to interfere with the executive function of the Department of Justice in doing its job in, as a co-equal branch of government, which is to investigate and prosecute possible crimes. It would be like if the Department of Justice walked into Eileen Cannon's office on a Tuesday and said, yeah, you're not going to be issuing injunctions today. What do you mean? We decided. The Department of Justice decided. No more injunctions. With Tuesdays, no injunction day in Eileen Cannon's courtroom in any case. Okay? Got it? That would be interference by the Department of Justice in the exercise of the judicial branch. And, we, you know, we can play this game all along with the executive branch. So it's, this thing is serious. Uh, you know, the same thing that Trump wallpapers over and his lawyers, the separation of powers, is a serious thing. It is the foundation of our constitutional republic.
Let's travel north from Georgia, where these oral arguments were taking place before the 11th Circuit panel, and let's head to New York, where E. Jean Carroll filed a new federal complaint under New York's Adult Survivors Act against Donald Trump, this time alleging sexual assault. She also added a new defamation count in this federal lawsuit filed in the Southern District of New York. Now, you'll recall that E. Jean Carroll previously filed a defamation lawsuit against Donald Trump back in November of 2019 after Donald Trump, while he was still the president, um, in a number of press statements and press conferences made defamatory statements about E. Jean Carroll after she came out with the fact that Donald Trump had sexually assaulted her in the mid-1990s at a Bergdorf Goodman, which is something that she stated happened in a book that she wrote, and she hadn't talked about it before. She had felt intimidated, and during the Me Too movement and as other people began speaking out against Trump, she felt it was important to tell her story, but her statute of limitations for the underlying sexual assault in New York had expired, so she couldn't sue for sexual assault, but she did sue for defamation because Donald Trump made a number of derogatory and defamatory statements about her and saying that he would never touch someone who looked like that or statements that are disgusting to that effect. Donald Trump then repeated those statements again when he was not the president. He said it on his social media platform in October, um, which is an important distinction because he was cloaked with potential immunities as the president that worked its way all the way up to uh, the Court of Appeals, where the uh, Second Circuit had found that the district court judge partially erred in finding, made an error in that Donald Trump was not a federal employee under the Westfall Act. The Second Circuit said he was a federal employee. But then the question of whether Trump's statements about uh, e. Jean Carroll, while he was the president, was in the course and scope of his employment. They sent that uh, question, and they certified that question to the highest court in D.C., in Washington, D.C., before their uh, court of appeals there in the, the highest court within the district. Um, so that's still playing out. And it's possible there that E. Jean Carroll's underlying defamation case gets thrown out. We don't know. Um, but her new defamation case, when he was not president, definitely doesn't have immunities, um, so she can pursue that, and she can now file uh, a claim for the underlying sexual assault under New York's Adult Survivors Act, which was signed into law and recently took effect. In fact, it took effect for the first time on Thursday, which has a one-year look-back window for people who were victims of sexual assault, certain delineated sexual assault crimes. So in Eugene Carroll's lawsuit, she cites the criminal conduct that was at issue with the sexual assault. And for people whose statute of limitations expired, there's this one-year look-back period where she can sue up until next year, uh, you know, one year from that Thursday, unless it's extended again, but it's one year. Um, so she filed the underlying case for sexual assault. Popak, what do you make yeah. of this new lawsuit? Well, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, shout out to Ravi Kaplan, the lawyer who represents E. Jean Carroll. We've had her on the show, Karen Freeman, at this midweek, right when Dobbs, uh, the Dobbs abortion decision was leaked. We we're fortunate enough to have Ravi Kaplan on the show. 
Uh, we didn't we didn't know that that was going to happen. We had her on the show for another reason, including talking about E.G. Carroll and some cases down in Florida that she was bringing against against Trump. Um, and we'll try to get her back to talk about this one. I read, I'm sure you did too, Ben. I read the um, the complaint that was filed uh, the day of the opening window of the Adult Survivors Act. Um, you know, we read these things so everybody in legal AF world doesn't have to. They can, but they don't. They don't have to. And I was really struck by a few things. First, master a master class and master craft by Robbie because she not only brought the civil rape case. Let's just think about that. A civil rape case against a president of the United States. He's now former, but it's just breathtaking in how terrible a, a, a series of events this has been with, in, uh, with the Trump, with Trump having been president, former president. The second thing is how smart Robbie was to add, as you and I predicted, you were one of the first ones that said, keep tweeting, keep social truthing. You're just adding new new claims that are that are outside of immunity for defamation against E. Jean Carroll. That's exactly what Robbie did. She added a claim because she wants to tie these cases together as related cases. She says in the in the new pleading, the new lawsuit, just, just to give a little bit of a procedure class here, the first lawsuit is already pending on, on defamation. It is scheduled for trial in April. There is a January oral argument at the D.C., as we talked about, a court of appeals to determine whether he, Trump was within the course and scope of his employment as president of the United States when he made these statements denying E. Jean Carroll's um, charge of rape um, and defaming her. Yes or no. And if it's if it's uh, it's he's in the scope, it's going to go back to the Second Circuit. And ultimately that those claims will just continue. But in the meantime, Lewis Kaplan, the judge who's not related to Ravi, as all the papers like to report, has the trial set setting. We've known about this new case being filed because um, Robbie Kaplan's firm has been very public about literally within a minute after the uh, opening window for the new um, filing of these cases, which is basically 60 days after Governor Hochul signed the act, giving people time to draft up their complaints, then you can then you could first file. And there were it's interesting, just as a side note, there were two two major cases that were filed almost on, at the same time, being the first cases in New York. One of them is E. Jean Carroll. The other is is a class action or a series of cases that filed against major banks based in New York, like J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, for the uh, Jeffrey Epstein scandal that they helped perpetuate his sex scandal and his sex schemes by letting money flow in and out of their bank accounts that he then used to um, to rape these young girls. So that's it's inter- interesting bookends for the two cases that were filed. So you have a defamation, a brand new case that's filed, though. Same parties, same lawyers. Now the question is, are those two cases going to be joined together as related cases and consolidated? Robbie's arguing that they should be. She's put in the hooks in her new case in order for that to happen. She said it is related to the other case. It is new defamation based on, you know, uh, on its truth social about the same events. And there should be a jurisdiction for the judge to put them together. So they're arguing to put them together. Of course, the Trump organization, I mean, Donald Trump's lawyers, um, including Alina Haba, again, makes the argument like, I don't even know, judge, if I'm going to be retained for this case and we need more time. And and the judge cut her off at another hearing last week and said, um, with all due respect, 
You knew about this new case coming because Ms. Kaplan's law firm has talked about it for quite some time. You knew it was going to come on today. You should have got your ducks in a row in terms of representation going into today. And I'm not stopping the trial. And I'm going to I'm going to table for today. I'm going to take under advisement the question of whether I'm going to join these two cases together. Again, always subject to what the Court of Appeals does at the D.C. level on the other on the other case. But even if even if the D.C. Court of Appeals rules somehow in Trump's favor and finds he was inside the scope of his employment when he defamed uh, E. Jean Carroll and therefore gets the benefit of what's called Westfall immunity uh, because he's a federal employee and is inside the scope and therefore he can't be sued, doesn't matter because he has a new defamation claim against him now based on the same facts in the Bergdorf Goodman dressing room where this terrible crime took place. And... Um, you, and he's got actions, the civil rape, the rape of E. Jean Carroll that happened before he was president. So this case is going to trial. And this case is going to trial with Robbie Kaplan versus, you know, Trump with her client, E. Jean Carroll, with all of her evidence, including apparently physical evidence that she has from the attack. And um, a, a jury's going to have to make this decision. This case is not getting dismissed in advance. There's going to be a jury picked in this case sometime in 2023 spring. And they're going to have to sit and adjudicate whether Donald Trump raped her and then defamed her uh, in 1995 or 1996. You know, the only uh, caveat that I would say is it's possible the trial may be delayed. And you and I may disagree on this, that with the new claims that are asserted, I think that Judge Kaplan, not related to uh, lawyer Kaplan, but the Judge Kaplan presiding over it, he's been no nonsense with Trump. I do think, though, to protect his record on appeal with the new claims being asserted, he may set that trial for uh, around October of 2023. Oh, so you're uh, still in 2023, though. I need early, more likely 20. 20, early 2023, late 2023, rather, would be me being optimistic and wanting that to happen. I think that trial with the new assault claim probably is February Can I to ask you March a of 2024. I don't disagree that he might add on six more months to get them more time. But what are the factual differences between him having to prove that it was not true that he did it, basically, or that she's she's lying about what happened in that Bergdorf Goodman dressing room when he raped her in that dressing room, according to E. Jean Carroll. What's the difference between that, the, def the, the discovery and the witnesses that would go into that issue of defamation and the physical rape issue? The, I don't, the, I, I don't see the discovery. The true answer is there is there is nothing. But could someone who's being sued make an argument to the court uh, and a court feeling like there could be potential issues on appeal if you don't give an appropriate time frame here and say, look, the new claims of a sexual assault are actually, you know, far more serious claims than a defamation claim. There are all these New York laws being uh, cited. We're going to have to consult with criminal counsel now. It's going to impact the strat. Like you can make up a bunch of stuff, and I'm not trying at all to make those arguments. But I think that those arguments will 
give you a little bit of rope, but not too much rope. Is, yeah, is, is my is my read there? Um, because I'm with you, Popak. There truly is nothing. But Trump will make those arguments, and the judge will be cognizant not to make sure that when they're to avoid a situation where he reaches a verdict against Trump, that that could be appealed for violating any due well, process. Let's, well, let's make that a teachable moment point. Trial judges look to their appellate courts above them um, and and will make decisions not only based on written precedent, of course written precedent, binding precedent in that jurisdiction, but also how they feel based on the Second Circuit in this case, or any circuit, how they will see a trial judge's conduct and whether it's going to be a reversible error or not. Trial judges, like most human beings, don't like to make error. And trial judges don't like to make reversible error. It's terrible on their statistics. It looks terrible for them as jurists for that to happen. It happens. I mean, every I don't think there's a judge alive that hasn't been reversed on some issue, some point, by a higher authority. But they'd rather not. And so they are mindful of these things. They're mindful of the precedent of their jurisdiction. They're mindful of the federal of Supreme Court precedent. But they're also mindful, like, I don't want to screw this up. So you're right. They might just throw them, you know what? I don't want an argument on appeal about not enough time was given for discovery and too short a period for trial. So what is what is the problem? Let's just go another six months. I mean, you know, E. Jean Carroll, you know, had 20 years to bring the case. So giving the defendant another six months really doesn't matter. Um, it could land right in the middle of he's running for office, which is, you know, that's his problem. Right? It, you know, it, the timing bites him at the backside because he's in trial during a, a campaign. You know, and if you don't follow the rules and you don't follow the law and you go rogue, the Court of Appeals can do a number of things to make your life and future career as a federal court judge very uncomfortable. Look at what the Eleventh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> look at what the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals did with Judge Cannon, and then later in the episode, look at what the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals is making the federal judge Terry Dowdy do, the Trump-appointed judge, and the Fifth Circuit is like actually making Terry Dowdy go through all these hoops and justify why you did this and justify why you did that and really call Terry Dow Judge Dowdy out. This mm -hmm. Trump MAGA judge, we'll talk about that later. But let's talk now about Jack Smith. Very busy. We talked earlier in the podcast about Jack Smith sending a letter on Thanksgiving calling out Trump's lawyers for lying to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And we learned last week before uh, the holidays had begun that uh, the Department of Justice has reached out to former Vice President Pence to ask him questions about Trump's crimes and to interview him. This technically started a little bit before uh, uh, the appointment of the special, special counsel with Thomas uh, Wyndham, who's also been leading the investigations into Trump's crimes. Wyndham now joins the special counsel's team. And, you know, from what the reporting is, Pence has a different view about a Department of Justice subpoena or an attempt to question there hasn't been a subpoena yet versus uh, the January 6th committee. And Pence frames the issues, and I think it's BS, but he frames the issue uh, against the January 6th committee as, well, this is a uh, separation of uh, powers issue here. So no, 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 I will just write books about it, but I'm not going to talk about it because I am a Christian first, I am a conservative second, and 
I am a Republican third, so if there is an election-denying candidate who wanted to kill me, as a Republican, I would support that individual. I would, I would definitely think deep and hard about it, but uh, I would support anyone who wanted to murder me because third, I am a Republican. That, that's that's my. I, I was going to say he was almost a hanging Christian Republican. Like, he's hanging from a rope. You. What do you do? Just be a normal human being. What are you doing? These people tried to kill you. Like, what the heck are you talking about? Anyway, Popak, break break down what uh, oh, and the Department of Justice being the executive branch. Them having questions for Pence. He doesn't really have any of the same arguments that uh, he can make for a separation of powers, even though I think he lose the separation of powers argument against Congress. But here's one thing I want to say, too. We've been saying about this on Legal AF is that the Department of Justice, through these grand jury proceedings that have been taking place, have been fighting hard against Trump's assertions of executive privilege, stopping Pence's former uh, top-level staffers, Mark Short, the former chief of staff to Pence, Greg Jacobs, the former general counsel to Pence. And so Trump tried to block their testimony. They testified over the summer when they were asked about their communications with Trump. They said, we can't answer it. Trump's asserting executive privilege. We'd like to answer it. Just get a court order. The Department of Justice did that. And then Judge Beryl Howell, the presiding federal judge over the uh, grand juries in Washington, D.C., ordered Mark Short, the former chief of staff, and Greg Jacobs, the former general counsel to Pence, to testify. But here's what I've always been saying on Legal AF to everybody who's been saying, I wish that Merrick Garland did the indictment of Trump like years ago. And I always say to you, I agree. I wish that too. But just think, if they didn't build that foundation, like building a building, they wouldn't have even been got to this point where Pence is feeling like I may have to testify because this judge has already made these rulings because of the methodical and careful way that it's been built versus a haphazard scattershot approach, which, by the way, a haphazard scattershot approach may work. But I want someone to be diligent and careful and precise when you are going against Someone who was a former president, a complete maniac like Donald Trump. Opa. I'm going to put it. I'm going to put it even simpler. There is no doubt in my mind that for the last two years since Jan. Six, coming up two years, that there has been a large group of Department of Justice personnel, prosecutors, line prosecutors, special prosecutors, and FBI agents that have done nothing, nothing, but get up in the morning and brush their teeth and think about Donald Trump. And think about Jan 6th and the insurrectionists, there's 900 other prosecutions, until they put their head back on a pillow. At all. There, that takes time. If it was a smaller, let me put it this way, if it was smaller insurrection, they would have gone faster. But when you have 900 people, more, more, they prosecuted 900 people. There were thousands of people who, who, were, who were swarming the Capitol. 900 are identified and prosecuted as, as criminal defendants. And then all the, and then backing up to that to figure out from a timeline how did that happen? Who looked the match? What were what were the conversations had? Thousands and thousands and thousands of interviews, but it had to be done. There is no shortcut to justice. We'd like it. I'd like microwave justice. I'd like TV justice. 
but we would all be kicking ourselves and kicking the Department of Justice if they didn't turn over every rock and they didn't do every interview, they didn't strip away every executive privilege and every attorney-client privilege and get every witness. It's extraordinary what they've been doing. They're getting lawyers to flip on clients, clients being Trump, clients being Pence, Trump, you know, they're, 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 they're blowing through sacrosanct attorney-client privilege and getting the Eastmans of the world to be in the firing line uh, and, and having federal judges declare Trump a criminal and lawyers a criminal. You know, people have been disbarred who've been involved. I mean, there's a lot that's been accomplished when the final scorecard for Merrick Garland is assembled. I think we're going to be proud of the work we did. I also think they took one. They took one for the team before Jack Smith was appointed. They knew that Jack Smith was coming on board, but they let the Department of Justice and the other prosecutor that you mentioned, and ultimately Merrick Garland, put out the feeler for, for Pence. They figured, you know what, he's got a lot on his plate on day one. <laughs> now that the midterms are over, we'll take it. We'll take that one. So they, they started the process, and now Jack Smith, of course, is picking up the pieces. I saw all the reporting. You're totally right in your approach. I don't understand why you get to write a memoir about how scared you were on Jan 6 and how you thought your <laughs> boss lost his mind about, about it. And then, you know, you know, he's very interesting. It's very interesting because he's also candidate Pence. He hasn't announced yet, but it's get, he's getting awful close. And he, he's trying to find a way to thread the needle to keep as many Trump supporters as possible without alienating them. Whether he alienates Trump or not, I'm not sure it matters. But he doesn't want to alienate that red meat base because he wants to get it over to him. So now he's saying things along the lines of when they asked him in interviews recently, they said, well, what did you think about the hang Mike Pence comment? And he said, I'm not sure it's a crime to get terrible legal advice, meaning Giuliani, Powell, Eastman, you know, Boris Epstein and all the other people in the Jenna Ellis, all those other terrible lawyers in that inner sanctum. So you can see how he's trying to spin this. But as you said, he was adamant about not testifying to Jan 6 because of separation of powers but less adamant about whether he's going to voluntarily cooperate with the Department of Justice or make them go through their paces of going through a grand jury process through Judge Howell's courtroom to subpoena him, and then whether he's, there's going to be an assertion of executive privilege. Apparently, the focus for the Department of Justice, based on reporting, is on the phone call specifically between Trump and Pence at 11.20 a.m. before the Jan 6 you know, uh, attack, insurrection on Jan 6 about, hey, Mike, can you do us a favor here and don't certify the election while we work backdoor to try to get all these uh, these election integrity issues resolved or whatever the effing phone call was. And that was the phone call that they wanted, which is interesting because that really would tie Trump's fingerprints to an obstruction of the uh, you know free elections and the transfer of power. So, among other things, they'll ask him. But this is, now there's going to be a negotiation process to see if they're going to if they're going to let him come in and give a voluntary uh, give voluntary testimony uh, or through the grand jury process. And you and I will have to do it. The other interesting thing before we leave the topic, Ben, is who's representing uh, Mike Pence? It's Emmett Flood, who used to represent Donald Trump back in the day, but is very well considered in legal circles. Um, and as a, a defense lawyer for politicians, flip sides a long time ago and even ratted out it even criticized Trump as a former client and is now a a lawyer du jour 
for people like Mike Pence when they need a real lawyer, not Alina Haba, to defend them with the Department of Justice. Absolutely. Definitely no Alina Haba. Alina Haba, though, makes me happy. Okay, whenever <laughs> Alina Haba is in a that case, she exists, or, makes me happy. Or she's, or she's doing an, you know, an argument somewhere, or her name is on the pleading, I smile, I go, okay, this is going to be fun. Trump's going to be sanctioned. And it's like, you know, it's so easy for me to predict the outcome. You know, it's usually very easy for me to predict the outcomes of Trump cases. But on an Alina Haba one, I know I'll be 100 for 100. Can, can I ask I'll you a question? Like, I want to ask you a question. An honest question. Who do you think decides ultimately which lawyer is, besides the lawyers having their own interest in deciding whether they want to do that case or not, who do you think decides what's going to go to Alina Haba, what she's going to argue, what's going to go to Kais? What trustees, you know, this isn't just random selection. Yeah. It's not like they sit around. Who do you think is, is saying, I know it's Alina. I, 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 know, I know Trump's personality. I know. So he doesn't even, they all think they're going to be doing the argument. And none of them really know. And, but Trump will never, like, he knows where Haba should argue. Like, he knows that if she argued in front of the 11th Circuit, or if she actually did the oral argument on like a serious motion that it would just be so embarrassing and humiliating. But he'll let her think that she may be doing it. And then at the last minute, he'll like tell trustee, he'll be like, all right, I, I need you to do this tomorrow. You're going you're gonna to do this, right? And trustee, and they pretty much just know based on their experience who's going to do what. Yeah. And on but, the briefs. And they make but, the decision on the briefs because they have to be, you know, they got to really be on the brief to argue, but I, I agree with you. I think they he lets everybody think that that they are you know the, the top dog, and yeah. then at the end he's smart enough to know that Alina Haba is not smart enough, and that she. But and the other thing we haven't talked about today, although we've talked about it at length, is this third parallel track that goes along with the lawyers and the judges, which is Donald Trump's continued social media presence and the and the inf, not only infuriating demeaning misogynistic, degrading, defamatory things that he says about everybody, FBI, DOJ, Merrick Garland, the judge that's presiding over his case, the, the, the prosecutor or the attorney general that's got the case. I mean, really disgusting things. And, and of course, the lawyers come in, try to come in clean hands, you know, while you never hear, for instance, you'll never hear in a courtroom, Alina Haba call... Letitia James, Peekaboo James, which is a racial dog whistle. I won't even go into what it's related to. That that Trump calls uh, the, the nickname, terrible racist nickname that Trump gives to uh, Letitia James. You'll hear Alina Haba say she's a political hack. You'll hear her say she is, um, there's no one that benefits more from this than the politically corrupt and compromised um, Letitia James, but they leave it to Trump to do the dirty work, which is to call her a racist name, or to go after an attack. You know, they will, you'll see Alina Haba stupidly attack Jack Smith, although she'll never be in a courtroom at the same time with Jack Smith ever, based on our analysis here. But but you'll you'll have Trump and the others then follow suit, attack Jack Smith's wife. Talk about misogyny knowing no boundaries. What does it matter? I thought it didn't matter what wives did or husbands did. 
in, in Clarence Thomas, it doesn't matter that Jenny Thomas is an insurrectionist, that she's trying, she was trying to create the fake, uh, to promote the fake elector scheme and was emailing and texting and meeting with all sorts of people in order to promote that, but that's not Clarence. But here, it matters that Jack Smith, who's completely apolitical, who, had, who who's, is an independent uh, and hasn't, there's nothing they can tie him to in terms of his own political meanings. But they have to go for the wife because she's a documentarian that once did a documentary on Michelle Obama. Who cares? I thought it didn't matter what the, what the uh, spouse did. Only matters, you know, but, but you'll, you'll never get, my point is you'll never get the lawyer to say this out yeah. loud. But almost all in the courtroom, Trump will be treating, tweeting all, or, or whatever he's doing, all of his crazy, crazy racist, misogynist things against his opponents. Well, he's getting his just desserts, and we'll talk more about some of those just desserts because his tax returns were handed over to the House Ways and Means Committee. Trump's been trying to block that for many, many, many years. But first, I want to talk to you about Athletic Greens. Today's program is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really simple. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients it needs to thrive. Busy schedules, poor sleep, exercise, the environment, work stress, or simply not eating enough of the right foods can leave us deficient in key nutritional areas. AG1 by Athletic Greens, the category-leading superfood product, brings comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everybody. Keeping up with the research, knowing what to do, and taking a bunch of pills and capsules is hard on the stomach and hard to keep up with. To help each of us be our best, they simplify the path to better nutrition by giving you the one thing with all the best things. And that's what I love about Athletic Greens. Before AG1, I would just take a number of pills and gummies and have no clue what the heck I was doing. But with Athletic Greens, I put one scoop of this green powder that tastes really, really, really good into a cup. I put the water in. I shake it up. I drink it. It is fantastic. It tastes fantastic. It's cheaper than your cold brew habit, and it gives you all the vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients that you need. 75 of them to be exact in one convenient daily serving. The special blend of high-quality bioavailable ingredients and a scoop of AG1 works together to fill those nutritional gaps in your diet, to support your energy and focus, to aid with your gut health and digestion, and to support your healthy immune system, and it replaces those multiple products or pills with one healthy, delicious drink. And it's lifestyle-friendly, so whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, it's for you. It contains less than a gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no nasty chemicals, and it tastes great. Join the movement of athletes, life leaks, and legal A efforts, and get your athletic greens AG1 today, and to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. But here's what you got to do. Visit athleticgreens.com slash legal AF today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash legal AF to take control of your health and give AG1 a try. I really, really like AG1. It tastes good, and I think you will enjoy it as well. And moving to our next sponsor, which I love too, and Popak, I know you love this, 
aura frames. They do these digital photos for your wall. And Popak, you said, hey, Ben, toss this one to me because I got three of these. They look good. Popak, tell us about your experience. Yeah. So I love aura frames. They've been with us before, usually around holiday times, if not beyond. I actually, I'll, I'll say it out loud. I'm proud. I've got three aura frames. I've got one. <laughs> I do. I have one at my home. Oh, I do. I know. I have one at my one at my office, and I gave one to my mom. And the reason I like aura frames as a as a digital frame is because I remember the ones from ten and fifteen years ago. It's a terrible technology, and aura frames is the exact opposite because it's really easy um, to do uh, right from the comfort of your own mobile phone or laptop. You have your pictures, whatever they are, and then you can instantly, by pulling up the Aura app, you can instantly just check check next to every photo, hundreds and hundreds of photos if you're on a if you're on a trip the way I am today. And you can take you could just check, 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 check all those photos and send them. There'll be a list of the frames that you own underneath. You have one, two or three frames. I just click the ones I want it and then instantaneously all of those photos by the time I get home are already rotating, maybe with music, through the aura frame. And it's great because with my mom particularly, um, who I don't see as often, unfortunately, I can send her photos that I know she loves to see about what's going on in my life. And I can just shoot it rather than really just talk to her about it. I can shoot it to her frame without her even really knowing about it. And then when I get her on the phone the next hour, I say, Mom, go look on the frame. I'll walk you through some of these great new pictures that I just loaded. It's really, it's really great. And it's also a nice way to connect, literally connect with people and family and extended family that you don't see regularly by sharing with their